Take your Bibles with me now, please, and uh, open them to the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, written by Luke, the gospel writer. Our focus this morning will be verses 1 through 3, particularly verse 3. And so if you would allow me to read these verses, and then we'll start. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In my former book, Theophilus, the former book being the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now verse 3, and this is our focus this morning. After his suffering, that is after his death, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. We are all familiar today with the term fake news. In my research on this phrase, fake news, I discovered that it was first used 130 years ago in 1890 in Great Britain when all kinds of sensational news reports were being given in the newspapers. The prevalence of fake news has increased exponentially with the proliferation of social media. U.S. President Donald Trump is credited with popularizing this term in our day and age, especially whenever there was a news article that was against him. It was always fake news. Today, this term is bandied about to dismiss what the experts are saying or to cast doubt on credible information. Fake news is essentially just false or misleading information. Now, within this incredible news that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, a massive fake news campaign was launched by the chief priests and the elders in Jerusalem. The Roman soldiers who had guarded the tomb, who ran in fear because of the angel who had lifted the stone out of the way, and Christ came out of the grave, Those Romans had gone to the chief priests and the elders and informed them what had happened. And so the leaders of Jerusalem bribed these men and said to them, this is recorded in Matthew chapter 28, you say to everyone you come in contact with that his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Interestingly, this is still believed, this fake news is still believed by many today who refuse to examine the credible and the convincing evidence that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. In verse 1, Luke says, in my former book, and he says, in my former book, I recorded all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And so for just a moment, as we did on Good Friday morning, I want us to just go back to the former book for a moment and look at the first four verses, the preface that Luke writes in his gospel account. He writes, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. To summarize then what Luke says in these opening verses of his gospel, we know this, that Luke recorded historical events. He, he says he went back and spoke to people. He, he carefully investigated what was going on. He says these are the things that were certainly fulfilled among us. And when he uses the word fulfilled, it's interesting that that's the word he chooses as opposed to these are the things that happened. Because he could have used the word these are the things that happened. 
That would still be true to what he's writing. They're historical facts. These historical things actually happen, but he uses instead the word fulfilled, meaning these are the things that were prophesied about way before Jesus came, and they happened. That is, they were fulfilled in time and space. Luke also consulted eyewitnesses when he wrote his gospel, and no doubt when he wrote the book of Acts as well. He spoke to individuals like Mary, the virgin. He would have spoken to Mary Magdalene. He would have spoken to many of the women who were there, who followed Jesus, and who were there at the foot of the cross, and who were there and saw the risen Christ. He would have spoken to some of the apostles to get their stories. In other words, Luke didn't get his information from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone. He went right to the primary sources and spoke to them to get the the information that he recorded for us. And so he uses the word carefully, investigated. He researched this and he recorded it for us. The third thing that we can say is that Luke grounds the Christian faith. That is, the things that are believed among us. He grounds the Christian faith in certainty. He says, so I've written all of this and carefully investigated it so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And by things, he's referring to events in the life of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus and the truths that Jesus taught. These are the foundations of our faith. And Luke says that we can be assured that these are true. Now, I don't know how you respond to that, but I can remember as a young believer really struggling with with the veracity of certain things that were said in the Bible. And I can remember being challenged on my faith by, by people whose intellect was far greater than mine and challenging me about what I was believing, putting down what I was believing, and I entered into a time of uncertainty about what I had believed. But these opening verses of the Gospel of Luke bring a great assurance to my heart that Christianity, the things I believe in, Christianity is not a park-your-brains-on-the-shelf kind of faith. Christianity is not an imaginary Alice in Wonderland kind of faith. Christianity is actually based on historical facts. Christianity is not a leap in the dark kind of faith. It is based on verifiable truths. Now look again at verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So here's the fourth thing that I think it's important for us to say about Luke's writing is that Luke informs us that the ministry of Jesus did not end. It continues. You see that? In my former book, in the Gospel of Luke, I recorded everything about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And he's implying here that Jesus continues to do, Jesus continues to teach. The ministry of Jesus is not over. It's not finished. Now we know that the death and the resurrection of Jesus are never to be repeated events. They stand alone as being absolutely unique and by his death and by his resurrection, Jesus finished the work of salvation for his people. He finished the work that the Father gave him to do. On the cross he cried out, it is finished, completed, it's over, it's finished. But there is an aspect to the work of Jesus that continues to this day, and it says here that this work of Jesus continued through the Holy Spirit, verse 2, to the apostles he had chosen. The next generation carried it on. Now, when you and I think of the ministry of Jesus, we, we, when we think of the things that Jesus did, we, we often think of the miraculous signs that he performed. He turned water into wine. He he healed the official son while the official son was 26 kilometers away from where Jesus was standing. He simply said, your son is healed. And his power was projected that distance away. 
We think of Jesus healing the, 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 the paralyzed man who, who lied beside the pool and the man's legs were dead and Jesus put life into the man's legs. We think of, of Jesus taking five loaves of bread and two fish and multiplying them and feeding 5,000. We think of Jesus walking on the water. We think of Jesus opening the eyes of a man who was born blind and lived the entirety of his life not seeing a thing. We think of Jesus raising Lazarus up out of the grave after he'd been dead for four days. We, we think of the, of, of the multitudes of people whom he set free from demonic powers. You see, with each of the miracles of Jesus, there was an opportunity, as it were, for Jesus to actually show to reveal who he was. Each one of the miraculous signs of Jesus pointed to something about him. They weren't just miracles for miracles' sake. They were miracles that were signs that were pointing to a greater truth as to who he, he was. But that's not necessarily what Luke is, is telling us here when he says what Jesus began to do and to teach because the main ministry of Jesus, what was it that Jesus began to do and continued to do while he was alive and what work did he pass on to the apostles and to us? Well, surely too we should be praying for God to do miraculous things in people's life but everything that Jesus did was to bring men and women to himself ultimately and to make them faithful disciples. He began his ministry walking along the shores of the lake where he found Andrew there who was mending his nets and he said to him, follow me. And Andrew, when he discovered that Jesus was the Messiah, went to his brother Simon Peter and said, Simon, you need to come and meet this man who spoke to me. I believe he's the Messiah. And Peter, skeptical at first, came to Jesus and discovered that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And then he came to Philip and he said, Philip, come and see, come and follow me. And Philip did, and then Philip went on and told Nathaniel, and Nathaniel went on to tell others. And Mark summarizes this beginning of Jesus' ministry with Jesus' words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You see, before the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the majority of Jesus' time was spent making disciples. He was strengthening them and helping them and encouraging them, rebuking them often, correcting them so many times, but teaching them. So that finally, when he gave the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, in essence, all he was simply saying to these men is, do what I did. You saw what I did. You experienced what I did with you. Now you go and, and do this with others and do it all around the world to all nations. Do the same. And so for three years, Jesus was preparing these men. And then after his death and resurrection, we read here in these opening verses that he showed himself to these men over a period of 40 days. 40 days. So he carried on the work that he had begun to do in these men. He carried it on. He wanted to prepare them to make disciples of other people. But now he was, he was going to instruct them. He was going to, to, to prepare them at an entirely new level. He was going to ratchet up, as it were, the preparation, the readying of these men to be disciple makers all around the world. And in order to make them ready, in order to make them ready to continue to do everything that Jesus had done, the things that he had taught, Jesus did two things. And the first thing pertained to what they would see, and the second thing pertained to what they would learn. What would they see? Here's the first thing that Jesus did. The Lord brought his disciples to an absolute conviction concerning his death and resurrection. After his suffering, verse 3, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He brought them to a, an absolute conviction concerning his resurrection. Now, when Pastor Lee read Luke 24 to us this morning, 
He read just a portion of it. We, we, we didn't have time to read the whole passage, but as, as we read the resurrection stories in Luke 24, Matthew 28, Mark 6, 16, John 20 or 21, when we read all of these stories, true stories, we have read them and we have been familiar with them. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, we're so familiar with these stories that we fail to realize just how remarkable these stories are. After his suffering, he showed himself to them, how? By many convincing proofs that he was alive. After his suffering, after he'd hung on the cross, after he died, after he had been buried, he presented himself. It sounds incredible. I mean, it, it sounds unreasonable. It sounds unbelievable. It, it sounds impossible. It sounds crazy. It was crazy 2,000 years ago, and frankly, it's still, in a sense, crazy today. Luke, who wrote this account, and, and the people of whom he wrote, the people of the ancient world, the people of, of Jesus' day, Listen, they, they, were not, they were not stupid people. Somehow we think today, with all of our knowledge, with all of our scientific advancement, we think that the, the people of the ancient world, that, that, that they were marked by a foolish credulity. They, they just had this tendency to simply believe anything and everything. We think that people in the past were, were gullible and unsophisticated and, and overly superstitious, backward, hillbilly types. It was so easy to pull the wool over their eyes. But that's not true. The people of the ancient world knew that virgins don't conceive and give birth. Mary understood that. The people of the ancient world understood that, that the dead people don't get up and start walking around again. They don't turn up at their funerals or after their funerals and engage in conversations and share meals with people who attended their funerals. But Luke says, Jesus did. Jesus did. And Jesus did and we know this for a fact, and, the, and Luke was bringing, or Jesus was bringing these disciples to an absolute certainty of his resurrection. Jesus wanted them to have an unshakable faith and conviction that he'd risen from the grave, that what they would preach in the future was unquestionably true, so how did he do it? He, he gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. And this expression, convincing proofs, the word here means evidential proof that is credible on its own merits. It's proof that cannot be denied. It's demonstrably true. Luke is saying that the resurrection then of Jesus was not some wishful thinking. It, it wasn't mass hallucination that occurred. It wasn't just one disciple's opinion. It wasn't something that was based on a single experience. It is proofs plural, over a period of 40 days. It is solid evidence that Jesus appeared many times over many days and gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. And if we take the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the words of the Apostle Paul who writes about the resurrection in his first letter to the Corinthians, we discover that the scriptures record for us 10 actual appearances of Jesus Christ after he'd risen from the dead during this 40-day period. 10. Now that's a significant number. There may have been actually many more, but Luke and the other gospel writers record for us 10. So this is a significant thing. Now, Luke doesn't give us all of the 10, but Luke does record a number of things that happened. And Pastor Lee read one of the Pass, the, the passages on the appearance, the appearings of Jesus. 
In Luke chapter 24, Luke records, first of all, a conversation that takes place between two disciples of Jesus. They're not named. It's clear they're not among the 11. So they weren't in the apostolic band, but they're two disciples of Jesus who were close to Jesus, but they, are, they remain unnamed. Now they're walking back from Jerusalem on their way to a small town called Emmaus. They're on the path, the pathway. And Jesus suddenly comes and walks alongside of them. And they don't recognize Jesus at first. They're despondent. Their hopes have been crushed. They thought Jesus was the one who was going to redeem their, their people and their nation. They are absolutely confused and they are faithless at this point in time. But as the conversation continues, Jesus, who they still have not recognized, shares with them that that it was necessary for the Messiah to die and to rise, and then suddenly something happens. They stop on their journey to, to this small town, and they stop to eat, and when they stop to eat, Jesus gives thanks, and he takes bread, and he breaks it, and the moment he broke the bread, something happened. Their eyes were opened, and they realized that before their very eyes was Jesus. And then suddenly, he disappeared. They immediately turn around on the road, and they head back to Jerusalem, and they say to each other, it is true. The Lord has risen. The two go back into the city, and they inform the 11 apostles of what has happened. And they go into a house, and the scripture makes it clear that the house, the doors of the house were locked, and, 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 they, and Jesus suddenly appears, and he says to, the, to all of them, to the 11 plus the two, and whoever else was there, peace be with, with you. And Luke says they jumped out of their skin. Now, actually, Luke didn't use those words. That's, that's a Mahaffeyism that you sometimes might find in the Bible, but, well, actually, it's not in the Bible, but... It simply says that they were startled and frightened, and they thought they had seen a ghost. And Jesus said these words to them. Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You know what's in his hands. The marks of his crucifixion. Same in his feet. It is I, myself, Touch me and see. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then it says, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, I I don't know exactly what was going on in their minds. I don't know exactly how they were standing at that point in time with Jesus in front of them. But I can imagine in in my mind, I, 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 I can... I can see what is actually taking place. They, they see the unmistakable marks, and I can envision them inching a little bit closer, somewhat fearful of, of what they're going to touch. And they actually touch Jesus. You know what Jesus says next? <laughs> it's kind of funny, actually. He says, do you have anything to eat? Do you have anything to eat? It kind of breaks the tension of the, of the moment, and they give him some broiled fish, and Jesus eats it, and Luke says he ate it in their presence. You see how physical this is? This is some spiritual experience here. It's physical. He ate in their presence. Now, why does Luke give us these details? What is his purpose in this? Well, again, he, he carefully investigated everything he'd seen. He wants you and I to be certain. But, but what is the point of mentioning that Jesus was talking to them, that Jesus encouraged them to touch him, and that Jesus was eating with them? You see, Jesus showed himself alive to their senses, to their eyes, to their ears, to their hands, so that they could not d- deny what they had experienced. Now, it's not just Luke. Uh, the other gospel writers essentially do the same for us. 
We have the story of Mary Magdalene, the former prostitute who Jesus forgave, out of whom he cast seven demons, and and she is there at the tomb, and she realizes that the body of Jesus is gone, and and she is weeping there, and, and a man approaches her while she's overcome with grief, and she thinks it's the gardener of the graveyard, and in her tears, she says, sir, if you, have, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And then the man speaks. You know what he says? He just simply says her name. He said, Mary. And immediately she knew. She'd heard the voice before. She'd heard him say her name before. Mary. She heard And then she clung to him. She heard and she saw and she touched him. And she said, I have seen the Lord. And she went to tell the disciples of what had happened. And then John tells us that Thomas was the one who perhaps out of all the disciples doubted the most. And the disciples had told told him a little bit later that they had actually seen the Lord risen. But Thomas wasn't convinced and he refused to accept their testimony he said unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side I will not believe it and seven days later and another scene the doors of the house are locked Thomas is there with the others and Jesus appears in the room and he says to him Thomas put your fingers here see my hands put your fingers here Thomas, reach out your hand and and, and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Now, there are other appearances, and we don't have the time to mention them all today, but there's one thing that is underscored in each of the stories where Jesus appeared, and that is that these men and women, when they saw Jesus, they were not easily convinced In other words, these men and women were not expecting this to happen. They weren't looking for a resurrection. They weren't hoping that a resurrection was going to happen. They had doubts, and their doubts persisted until Jesus gave them convincing proofs. And when Mary came from the tomb and said that the tomb was empty, Peter and John ran to the tomb. They looked inside, and Peter still did not believe. The empty tomb did not convince him. And then when Mary came to them a second time and said, I have seen the Lord, still the disciples did not believe her, and they didn't believe the other women who had seen Jesus as well. The point I'm making is that these disciples did not immediately and readily believe. They had to be convinced And Jesus did that. He convinced them. And he brought them to an absolute conviction of his resurrection. And Luke calls all of this cumulative evidence to which the disciples were exposed repeatedly and continuously, he calls it convincing proofs. If one thing is certain then, according to the gospel accounts, Jesus actually rose from the grave. It's the only satisfying explanation for the evidence that is given. Sir Edward Clark was a a judge in the British High Court. And on one occasion he wrote, as a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study for the events of Easter Day. To me, the evidence is conclusive, and over and over again in the High Court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. As a lawyer, I accept the gospel evidence unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to the facts that they were able to substantiate. And friend, if you are a skeptic about these things, apart from the historical evidence that the gospel records give us, there is one overwhelming difficulty that you you need to wrestle with, and that is that these disciples were completely released from fear that had gripped them because they thought they would be the next to be crucified on crosses. 
And they continued to do and to teach what Jesus did. They went out and made disciples of others. They stood fearlessly in the streets of Jerusalem and proclaimed that he had died and risen from the grave. Now how is it that people who flounder in doubt and despair can become unshakably convinced? How is it that people gripped by fear can become so bold? They denied who Jesus was when he was arrested, and now they fearlessly proclaimed that he was the Christ of the living God. How? Because they could not deny what they had seen, what they had heard, and what they had touched. They were brought to an absolute conviction. They were transformed, and they went out then from there to make disciples of all nations because they knew that the resurrection of Jesus is true. Now that's not the only thing that happened. He showed himself alive by many convincing proofs, but the last line of verse three says, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So he convinced them that he had risen from the grave, but he continued to instruct them. Verse 2 says, he gave instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And verse 3 makes it clear that these instructions were about the kingdom of God. Instructions about the kingdom of God. Now, if you jump down to verse 6 in Acts chapter 1, you will see that the disciples had a misconception about what the kingdom of God was all about. They said to Jesus, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they they were thinking that the kingdom of God would center entirely around their nation, that the Jewish people, because they were God's elect in the past, that somehow God would just completely confine his rule to the Israelite people. They thought that Israel was at the center of God's rule. It is the only place where God ruled. Three years before his death and resurrection, Jesus had helped them to grasp the meaning of what the kingdom of God was all about. And you know the stories, you know the things that he said, you know the parables that he gave, the kingdom of God is like. How often did Jesus refer to the kingdom? Luke tells us that the kingdom of God is mentioned 30 times in his writing alone. And if you take all of the gospel accounts, the the expression kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is found 92 times. It was the center of the ministry of of, of Jesus' teaching. Now for 40 days, he's broadening their vision. For 40 days, he is trying them to see that the kingdom of God is not limited by their provincialness. It's not limited by their their narrow nationalistic aspirations, that the kingdom of God is actually universal in its scope because in verse 8 he says, you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God will spread that far. It's international in its scope. So what exactly did Jesus say to them and teach them about the kingdom of God? What really does this phrase, kingdom of God, mean? And I want to give you three truths. I'm going to give them to you very, very fast because this is the background to understanding what Jesus means by the phrase, the kingdom of God. First is this, God is king. You see, this this is the creed of the Jewish people. It's found all throughout the Psalms. The Lord reigns. How often do we read that phrase? The prophet Isaiah said, the Lord reigns. All of the prophets proclaimed this truth. The Lord reigns. This was the creed of God's ancient people. And in this creed, we have the basic truths that God is sovereign, that he is creator, he is sustainer. The Lord rules. God is king. And in his rule, he chose Israel as his special possession to make Israel a vehicle to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. God is king. But secondly, God's rule, his kingship, is opposed. Opposed. Creatures, human beings made in his image, made in his likeness. We have all rebelled against the rule of the sovereign living God, of the true king of the universe. Number three, 
the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they foresaw a day coming in the future when, when the rebellion against the king and the rejection of God as king would finally end and God would reign unopposed universally over all his creation, including human beings, and that this reign, this rule, would be ushered in by God's anointed one, the Messiah. And so going back to this phrase in verse one of all that Jesus began to do and to teach, what was it that Jesus taught? His, his first sermon recorded for us in the, in the Gospel of Mark is repent for the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is near. You see, in Jesus and through Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near. And throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus, what did he do? <coughs> he caused rebels against his rule to repent. He restored rebels. And he brought restored rebels under his rule. And when individuals embraced him with a true and living faith, they became disciples of Jesus Christ. So what is the message then of the kingdom of God? It is that God rules in the lives and the hearts of those who have received the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Friends, this summarizes the heart of Jesus' teaching, that God's rule lives in the hearts of those who receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We're gonna be in the book of Acts for the next couple of months. And then we'll resume it again after our anniversary time in October. And probably into the new year, we will stay in the book of Acts. And we're going to discover in the book of Acts that the apostles, it says of them that they were preaching the kingdom of God. It also says they were preaching the gospel. Sometimes it says they were preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Here's what I want you to understand then. The gospel and the kingdom, the preaching of the kingdom of God, people's hearts coming under the rule of God, and the gospel, that Jesus Christ has died and risen from the grave, that the gospel and the kingdom and their preaching of it, they were essentially preaching the same thing. The gospel and the kingdom, in a sense, are the same. What do I mean by that? The good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus is the way, it's the way by which rebellious people end their rebellion and they enter into the kingdom and they become subjects of the king, Jesus. It is through the preaching of the gospel, the explaining of this truth that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again from the grave. It is through that gospel that the rule of God is established in people's hearts. It's through the good news that we become followers of Jesus. It's through the gospel that we are made disciples of Jesus. And the message that Jesus died and rose again is the message that brings the rule of God to people's hearts. And coming under that rule begins with an experience of conversion. Conversion. I know people don't like to use that word today, but it's a word that's found in the Bible. In other words, people are turned around. They're completely turned upside down. Conversion is the moment when your eyes are opened, when you understand the cross, when you, like the thief on the cross, say, Lord, remember me and you're completely changed into a new creation by the power of the Holy Spirit, so changed that your heart's desire now is to live under the rule of Christ. And coming under that rule is not just something that starts with conversion, but it continues through a process that we call sanctification. There's a big word. It simply means that as disciples of Jesus, every day we, we grow in our faith as we apply the word of God to our lives, to all of the struggles and the challenges and the sufferings of life, so that over time, more and more we become like Jesus. More and more we become submissive to his rule. We go deeper with him, deeper into his rule, and our submission to him becomes even more pronounced. And then finally, it climaxes in what we call glorification. 
when we will be glorified at the end of time with the Lord, the Lord Jesus. Jesus will return and he will bring at his return the kingdom of God in its fullness. Meaning he will banish everything and everyone that opposes his rule in the world. And you and I will be completely transformed. We will be freed from these bodies of sin and death and given new bodies like the glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And making disciples for Jesus is all about this process of conversion to sanct- through sanctification and ultimately until we will be like Christ in glory. This process of bringing people to Christ, growing them in Christ, and giving them the hope of glory with Christ. You see, friends, without the gospel, the truth that Christ died for us and rose again, without the gospel, there is no such thing as making disciples of Jesus. It's futile. It's useless. It means nothing. This is what Jesus grounded the apostles in. He prepared them for this mission So to sum it all up here in Acts 1, verses 1 through 3, Jesus did two things. He gave to his disciples an absolute conviction that he had risen from the grave, and he grounded them in the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, in the next few minutes that we have before we conclude our worship time, I want to answer the the question, what does this then mean to us today? If you are here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus, you believe that he not only died on the cross, but that, you, that he rose again from the dead. If you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the grave, then how does this apply to you and I today, 2,000 years after it actually happened? Let me say three things. First of all, these convincing proofs that Jesus had risen from the grave. These convincing proofs give us fresh confidence that truth really does matter in how we come to know God and how we come to understand God. What do I mean by that? Well, you and I are living in a world that today is characterized by what I would call a mushy relativism and a stubborn syncretism. What do I mean? The people that you and I rub shoulders with on a daily basis, and I may be generalizing here to some degree, but generalizations are generally true. The contemporaries among whom we live our lives, our friends, our family members, the neighbors, people in our neighborhood, people in our schools, people in our workplaces. People live their lives today with a with a, with a comforting relativism. Everything is relativistic in life, and it, and it keeps people from coming to terms with objective, verifiable truth. And so you hear it almost every, every day. It really, really doesn't matter what you believe about God. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your religion is. If, if you... If you find meaning and comfort in in this thing you believe in, that's great. It's great. That's your truth. My truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. They could contradict each other, but it doesn't matter if they contradict each other. It doesn't matter what is objectively true. And so we can subjectively all live happily ever after with each other, and never take the time to consider the important claims of Jesus Christ. Now this relativism is connected to, it's entrenched in this stubborn syncretism that is so much a part of our thinking today. And syncretism is simply the belief that all religions are, are equal, that all, all religions are valid, that all religions teach the same thing, that all religions are talking about the same God, just different names for God. They're all leading us to the same end. Syncretism basically says it doesn't matter what you call God, doesn't matter what name you give to him or to her or to it. But the problem is this. The problem is this. Christianity refuses to be sucked in to this relativism 
and syncretism. Christianity refuses, in the words of Michael Green, to be sucked into this indifferentism. And why? And the reason is what we've just looked at in verse 3. The reason is because Christianity puts forward to us, through Jesus, convincing proofs that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and that he is alive. You see, Christianity is not rooted in his, is rooted in history, not in philosophy. So if Jesus Christ actually lived and actually died and actually rose again from the dead, then, then that, that truth cannot be avoided. You, you can't marginalize Jesus. You, you can't push Jesus to the side. You, you, you cannot minimalize the convincing proofs. You, you, you cannot place Jesus on a platform of equality with others. The convincing proofs of his resurrection are a warning bell. They're like an air raid siren that is going off. And it's saying to us that truth really does matter about how you know God and understand God. So if Jesus is, as the resurrection asserts, God who has come to the rescue, then for us to reject him or to ignore him or be indifferent to him is the worst kind of foolishness we could ever enter into. And so I say to you today, on the basis of what I believe to be truth from God's word, the historical accounts that the gospels record for us, that Jesus is not and never can be just one among the many. He is not even the best. He is the only because of the convincing proofs that he has risen from the grave. These convincing proofs then give us fresh confidence that truth matters and that our mission matters as well. Because Jesus' resurrection is true, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other religion in the world that is able to make, let alone substantiate, that its founder has risen from the dead and is alive today. Hallelujah. Number two, these convincing proofs should give to us a new attitude toward death itself. If there's one truth that is universally true among all human beings, it is that all human beings fear death. Death has like a vice grip on us. If you have any doubts to this, just think of the extremes that we have gone to in the course of the last two years. The restrictions that we have placed upon ourselves, the lockdowns that we have endured, the money we have expended, all to keep us from getting COVID because we have a fear that we will die. But the resurrection changes all of this. It changes it all because the resurrection gives us a solid ground for hope. Jesus is the one who died, who has risen, and he assures us that if we believe in him, we will have life eternal with him. So what is there to fear? Because the resurrection is true, there is life after death, that he did go to the Father's house to prepare a place for us. Because the resurrection is true, suffering and death can be seen now in a, in a totally new life. Life with all of its pain and all of its struggle is not the end. And finally, and this ties into our preaching series of where we're going over the course of the next few weeks, the discipleship experience from the book of Acts. Convincing proofs, the convincing proofs of the resurrection make us a community with a purpose. We live in a very, very fragmented society. There is lots of talk about the Canadian mosaic, the multicultural dream, 
but we know that the reality is different. We live in a fragmented and polarized world where individualism seems to dominate the way people live on a day-to-day basis. Loneliness is one of the most troubling aspects of our culture and society today. I think it is absolutely noteworthy that in the Gospels, after the death of Jesus, the disciples are in an absolute state of despair and isolation. And what was it that rescued them from that? It was the resurrection. It was the convincing proofs that he had risen from the dead. And what did they do when they were convinced? They didn't go off on their own to do their own thing. But their common experience of salvation in Christ and resurrection truth created a community. They were brought together. And later in Acts 1, we will see that they prayed together. They assembled together with each other. They went out into the streets of Jerusalem and proclaimed the truth of Christ's resurrection. They did it together. At the end of Acts 2, we will see that they devoted themselves to one another. They became a community. To them, as a community, Jesus gave the Great Commission. Go, make disciples, baptize them. That is, initiate them, initiate new believers into this community of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to us today, his new community in 2022, in Hamilton today, the convincing proofs of the resurrection give to us the purpose of continuing his work, of bringing people under his rule through the gospel until he comes again. Father in heaven, thank you for what Luke records for us. Thank you for all of the implications of what it means that Jesus has risen from the grave. Thank you that the power of the resurrection has changed our lives too. Thank you that you have made us a new community that remembers continuously the death and resurrection of Christ, that is continually nurtured in the truths of the gospel, and that is brought together with a purpose to proclaim that Christ is Lord to the ends of the earth. Empower us, we pray, by your Spirit to take this message of the resurrected Christ to the whole world. We pray in his name. Amen. So go go forth now from this place in the power of the risen Christ. Seek the lost. Tell them of Jesus, of his death and his triumph over the grave. And as you share the convincing proofs, may God the Holy Spirit use you to bring many under his saving and grace-filled rule to the glory of our Father. Amen.